Hello and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. On last week's episode, Mizaki played the dutiful and demure daughter in order to extract vital information from her father's generals. On today's episode, she puts that information to good use with help from a few friends. I hope you enjoy part two of The Coming Storm, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by the Malifaux Jail, the finest penitentiary and correctional institution this side of the breach. We lock up anyone from violent criminals to the criminally insane to the insanely violent. If they pose a threat to society, we'll make sure they live out their days in a rat-infested warren surrounded by murderers and gang lords. We're proud to report that shankings are up 55% over last year. The trees of the Knotwoods, northwest of Malifaux City, grew to impressive heights. The thick canopy they produced overhead blotted out much of the light, and the light that did manage to sneak through only seemed to cast long shadows through the underbrush. Yamaziko walked through the underbrush toward the sound of battle. She had been a fighter for so long that she could almost visualize the fight by the sounds alone. By her estimate, she made out two creatures, undead most likely though quicker than she was accustomed to, and two, no, three illuminated. With those odds, the fight would be over soon. She had taken this task on at the request of Mizaki, but she didn't do it for her former student. She did it because she agreed that the Oeban's plan was overly reckless, and she was rarely wrong about these things. Yamaziko knew that the individual missions might succeed, but there was so much chaos, any power vacuum would quickly be filled with eager replacements. It was more efficient to deal with the devil you knew than to play dice with the one you didn't. A sudden cry shook her from her thoughts, but it was followed by silence. The Illuminated had won the fight, as she had expected. She had already hunted down three groups of the Illuminated and destroyed their poison, and each time had gone more or less the same. Lynch's lackeys were powerful and annoyingly resilient, but they lacked any sort of actual combat training. Yamaziko stepped into the small clearing and assessed the scene. The forest floor was soaked with ichor, and the smell of it filled the air. Two warriors in bark-like armor lay dead, huge gashes cut into their pale skin. Three illuminated stood over the bodies, clad in torn and ragged clothing. They stared at her in confusion. One of them was badly cut, and as she watched, she could see the wound sparkle with purple-blue light and begin to close on its own. She would have to work quickly. Lowering her yari at the woman closest to her, Yamaziko prepared for an attack. Her intent was obvious, and she would not waste her breath on words. Like their brethren before them, these three had to die. 
Like all untrained fighters, the woman charged directly toward Yamaziko, her left arm glowing as it twisted back into a brutal claw. Yamaziko braced the butt of her yari in the ground and waited. The charging woman tried to dodge left around the point, but a simple motion brought it back in front of her chest. The woman looked down in surprise as her momentum impaled her onto the spear, right through her heart. Yamziko's soulstone hung on a pendant around her neck, flared with light, capturing the woman's corrupted soul in its crystalline depths. The other two illuminated had begun to move around Yamaziko to flank her, though the injured one was not able to move as swiftly as the other. Yamaziko pulled her yari free of the dead woman and began to walk backward. A few more steps would put a large tree between herself and the healthy illuminated. Too late, her enemies realized what was happening. As soon as the healthy illuminated was out of sight, Yamaziko crouched low and sprang toward her injured enemy, her spear driving forward with great force. Again, Yamaziko saw surprise on her enemy's face. None of them expected an old woman to move so quickly. It was the first lesson she taught her apprentices. To underestimate someone based upon their appearance is the most fatal mistake one can make. Surprise dulled the Illuminated's movements, and he tried to dodge to the left, right into a patch of underbrush. He looked down out of reflex, and when he looked back up, Yamaziko drove her yari into his eye, killing him in one blow. As she was pulling her spear free, she heard the sound of plants moving behind her. Abandoning the spear, she ducked and rolled out of the way as a massive glowing claw slashed through the space where she had been standing moments before. She rolled to her feet and looked up at her final opponent, now positioned between Yamaziko and her Yari. His eyes were glowing the same purple-blue color as his monstrous claw hand, and his appearance was disheveled and unkempt. His shirt was stained with a substance she suspected might have been vomit. It is weakness of mind that led you down the path to walk, she told her enemy, and she lowered herself into a fighting stance. A body cannot be strong when the mind is weak. She preferred weapons to unarmed combat, but she had never allowed her preferences to dictate her training. The Illuminated brought his arm up and coughed, releasing an odd purple cloud toward Yamaziko. She leapt sideways, planted her foot against a nearby tree, and used it to launch herself up over the cloud, coming down in front of the surprised Illuminated. She planted a spinning kick squarely in his side. He staggered back, but managed to rake his claws across her chest. Blood welled up in the wound as Yamaziko grunted in pain. Instead of allowing it to distract her, she clasped her hand around her charged soulstone. It was a simple matter to channel the energy stored in the gem into her body, healing the wound and dulling the pain. The Illuminated stepped back in surprise, and Yamaziko smiled. We all have our tricks, Dark One, but I know yours and you don't know mine. With that, she lunged at the man before her, forcing him to dodge aside. Yamaziko continued to move forward, past the illuminated into where her yari jutted up from the throat of his dead companion. She wrenched it free and spun it in a wide arc, slicing open the man's thighs and forcing him to drop to his knees. It's always amused her how often untrained fighters ignored their surroundings. She walked up to him, easily avoiding a wild swipe of his claws. His wounds were already healing but it wasn't fast enough to save him. She drove her yari into his skull and ended his life. When they find your bodies, the Neverborn will know the truth. Your lives were wasted, she sighed, pulling her yari free and then bowed to them. 
Thank you for your service to the Thunders. I am sorry your sacrifice was in vain. She cleaned the blade of her weapon on the fallen man's shirt, then searched him and his companions. On each of them she found multiple whiskey flasks, each of which was filled with a sickly sweet glowing poison. Yemziko tucked each flask into her knapsack alongside the other flasks, and then wandered back into the forest in search of the next group. The soulstone around her neck was once more glowing with power. Some people had no respect for the rail lines. As a member of the foundry, and a key player in laying rail lines across Malifaux, it upset Kang every time someone abused the tracks. It was a simple thing. The rail workers risked life and limb in the wilds of the world, and worked double shifts no matter the weather, to connect and civilize Malifaux. The rails brought necessary supplies to the mining towns in the northern hills and the badlands, like arteries and veins spreading out from the twin hearts of Malifaux City and Ridley. In Kang's mind, the rails were life. It was why he worked so hard on them, why he pushed those under his supervision to give everything they had to their construction. It was why the occasional loss of life and limb for the advancement of progress was a price worth paying. When Mazaki had first approached him asking for his assistance, he had been leery of helping her. Loyalty was an important coin in the ranks of the Ten Thunders, and in the Foundry, where allegiances were complicated and multi-layered, that was doubly true. On the other hand, there was no love lost between the Oyabun and Mei Feng, and as Mazaki pointed out, any wrench that he could throw into the Oyabun's plans was certain to benefit his mistress. When she mentioned that the Oyabun's plan involved destroying a length of track to enable a simple theft of soul stones, it was the final push he needed to bring him over to her side. Mizaki, at least, seemed to understand the importance of the railroad, and how the destruction of even a short length was an insult to the loyal men and women who had put their blood into the track. He looked down the track as he walked toward the distant train car. Behind him were four rail workers, the same ones who had built this section of track the year before. They were just as upset at its destruction as he was, and they were willing to lay down their lives to honor the memories of those who lost so much in laying it. Not far ahead was a break in the track, where the ties had been pulled up. There was no one defending the tracks. They were too busy attacking the train itself. A few moments later they arrived at the broken section. Bullets whizzed off the ground a few feet away, and Kang could see the masked warriors of the Ten Thunders swarming over the train, running along the roofs of the cars. Horses were lined up to either side of the train, and from a quick count, he estimated there must have been around thirty of his brethren attacking the train. As a guild guardsman leaned out a window and took aim at him, one of the masked warriors leaned over the edge and slashed downwards with his katana, removing the man's head and a portion of his shoulder. Kang turned back to the rail workers. I know you remember laying this track. The long hours we put in. How Jew lost her arm when the cart busted. I know you remember the bandits that stole our supplies in the night. And when Akira went mad, babbling about that jackal, Kang heard their murmurs of agreement as he spoke. Now, these thieves have torn up the track so they can steal from this train. So that they can steal from the guild like those thieves stole from us. I say, we show them what the foundry is capable of. Show them how quickly we can fix what they screwed up. Jew and the others all shouted their agreement. <laughs>
Kang turned and jabbed a meaty finger toward the tracks. Let's go to work. As one, they set to work, lifting the track pieces and welding them back into place. As they started to work, though, they heard shouts in the distance. They had been seen. Kang hefted his huge shovel. Keep at it. I'll keep these bandits off you. He moved toward the train, putting himself between the fight and his workers. They continued their efforts, occasionally casting a worried glance toward the retreating form of their foreman. A masked Ten Thunder brother, the one who decapitated the guardsman, leapt down from the train and landed in front of him. Two more exited the train, their blood-flecked masks concealing their identities. The one in front spoke first. Kang, you are interfering with the plan of the Oyaban. Kang nodded. Sorry, the message must have been lost in transit. Everyone tends to keep the foundry out of the loop. His sarcasm was palpable. The brother nodded to him slowly, as you wish. Oa, prevent the workers from fixing the track. We shall take care of Kang, and then we shall rejoin the battle. Kang let out a mocking laugh. Are you scared that Hoa cannot handle me in a fight? He taunted. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw Hoa turn toward him. She was disobeying her orders because of pride. He mentally sighed. No one in the foundry would risk the mission for the sake of wounded pride. Hoa rushed at him from behind, and he spun, letting his hand slide down the handle of his shovel as he did so, giving him reach. The flat of the blade connected firmly with Hoa's face, an almost gong-like sound coming from her mask. He heard a crunch that might have been her nose breaking, and then she was on the ground. You'll have to do better than that, he chided. The other two brothers came at him in a coordinated strike as Hoa tried to regain her feet. The leader swung his katana in an overhead slash as the smaller man to his left swung a chain and a low arc at his knees. Against the smaller man it might have worked. Rather than backing away, Kang stepped up to the incoming blade, allowing it to bite into his shoulder before it had its full momentum. The pain was immediate and intense, but it was nothing he couldn't handle. He felt the chain wrap around his leg, and the second brother tugged at it with all his might. But Kang had a hundred pounds on him and refused to fall. He landed a punch in the swordsman's stomach that knocked the wind out of him. He followed it with a second, then a third, then a shove backwards that sent the winded man stumbling away from him. Behind him, Hoa dove at him with drawn knives. She landed a deep cut across his back, and he dropped to a knee. She moved forward, thinking him weakened. Much to her surprise, one of Kang's massive hands reached behind him, grabbed her by the arm, and heaved her into the man with the chain. The three were winded, and Kang smiled as he climbed to his feet. Is that all you've got? He turned his head, cracking his neck, and then planted the blade of his shovel into the hard-packed ground beneath him. Come on, at least put your backs into it. A light sparked up behind him, and he knew that his workers were welding the track together. They would be done soon. He could see the realization in the brother's eyes, too. He's wasting our time, the smaller man snapped. They needed no further cue. All of them charged him. For a moment, Kang wished he'd asked Mizaki for some soul stones. Kang stepped to the left bringing the end of his shovel into the small brother's face as his enemy's chain slapped into his chest with a great deal of force. 
While the chain hurt, the damage to his opponent was worse. The brother collapsed to the ground in a heap, his mask partially shattered by the force of Kang's blow. He would be unconscious for hours, if he ever woke up. The leader's katana cut into Kang's side, drawing a grimace of pain from him. The Thunder Brother had clearly expected the attack to have more of an effect, however, and his eyes went wide as Kang jabbed the handle of his shovel into the man's groin, dropping him to the ground. Kang wanted to finish the man off, but Hoa was on him, cutting laceration after laceration on his arm. The cuts were shallow, but there were dozens of them, and his numerous wounds were starting to take their toll. Kang was running out of steam. He grabbed her wrist and forced the blade back toward her. His superior strength easily allowed him to overpower her as he guided the point into her throat. He pulled it out roughly, in a spray of blood, and then turned his attention back to the wounded swordsman. The masked man had rolled over onto his back and pulled his mask free to gasp for air. Kang brought his boot down on the man's face, and that was that. The bodies lay around him, and he glanced back toward the rail workers. One of them raised her hand, giving him the signal indicating they were finished, and he waved them away from the track. He pushed the pain aside and moved toward the train. The conductor stared down at him, flabbergasted. Kang gave him a thumbs-up sign. The track's good, sir. The foundry works day or night. He did his best to put on a smile, but in his condition, he doubted it was very charming. If I were you, I'd get back to the city before the rest of them realize what has happened. The conductor reached up, and the train let out a massive whistle as the engine fired up. Kang nodded to the man, and limped off to join his rail workers. The whistle and the movement of the train caught the rest of the Ten Thunders off guard, and the would-be thieves were trying to escape the moving train as quickly as possible. A few managed to mount up and ride away in a cloud of dust, but most were shot in the back by bloodied but still living guardsmen. A few of the guardsmen waved their hands or cheered at Kang and his crew as the train passed them. Kang waited until the train was out of sight before turning back to his workers. Let's get out of here. Our job is done. Sidia approached the Malifaux jail with a confidence befitting a servant of the guild. Every guild agent he'd ever seen that was worth his snot was an arrogant ass, and Sidia had no qualms with playing the part. As he approached the outer gate, the guards called out, State your business! I'm here to see a prisoner, Sidia answered simply. Not in the middle of the night you're not, came the reply. Sidia audibly sighed. I have the authorization. I outrank you. And even if all that weren't true, I sincerely doubt that you could stop me. He saw the guard whisper something to another guard, and then the second man stepped up to the steel gate. Show me the documentation, sir. Sadia handed him the requisite paperwork. He had procured it at Mizaki's request. Honestly, he might not have taken the mission, except that he really wanted to experience jail from the other side of the bars for once. This looks to be in order, the guard said. He handed the paperwork back to Sadir and then opened the heavy gate. Are you with the other group we just let in? Sadir picked up his pace. They are just the people I am here to see. At least he wouldn't be early. 
There was a certain amount of swagger in Sidia's step as he entered the jail. It was the sort of swagger that one develops in prison. But he'd also noticed it in many of the guild's higher-ranking officers. Sidia assumed that working for the guild directly was its own sort of prison, and frankly, that assumption had yet to be disproved. The interior of the prison was familiar to him, despite Sidia never having done a stint in the guild jail. Old stone walls, lanterns dimmed low to conserve oil, the scent of days-old sweat and dried blood in the air. It was like going home. The guardsman manning the desk looked up as he strode forward, and then yelped as he did a double take. Mr. Alchibald, sir, wh wh what brings you here? Sidia could almost hear the, of your own accord. The guard seemed familiar somehow, which was an odd feeling. Most of the people Sidia knew were dead, locked behind bars, or working for McCabe. Do I know you? B Benny Sarb, sir. The guardsman had turned pale. You broke my arm in two places and then shanked me in the kidney. Recognition spread across Sidia's face, and he grinned at the memory. Officer Madbuli, he laughed, and slapped the man on the back. I remember now. I liked you. That is why I only stabbed you once. The guard only seemed to pale further. Sidia gestured with his machine gun toward the door. Officer Madbuli, I need to talk to a prisoner. Victor Ramos. I'm meeting with some friends that wish to do the same. It's well past visiting. Sidia shifted his machine gun from one shoulder to the other. What I mean to say is you can't take any wep- Sidia arched an eyebrow at him. Well, you can't take any guns into the prison, just in case. Sidia grinned at the man, of course. Having an armed criminal in the prison does seem like a terrible idea. The man blanched, and Sidia laughed. You continue to amuse me, Officer Mabuli. I have the proper paperwork. Just let me in. Of course, but someone will have to go with you, sir. Let me call someone. The man tried to smile at Sidia as he spoke. Sidia rolled his eyes. He didn't have time for this. You will do fine. Here is my gun. He handed it over. Lead the way. The man gulped, but thought better of questioning Sidia. He'd seen just what the man could do, and the dream still haunted him at night. Right away, Mr. Alchibald. And let me just say, it's so good to see that you've turned your life around. Sidia shot him a withering glance as he unlocked the door, and they entered the prison. It was the night shift, so they passed few guards in the dimly lit corridors. He could see some prisoners crying out in their sleep. To Sadia's estimation, too many of the prisoners should have been in an asylum, but he supposed that they had to go somewhere. The prevalence of convict labor meant that, in Malifaux at least, few able-bodied convicts stayed in the prison for very long, leaving only those too unhinged or sick for work. He found that the idea saddened him a little bit. The world had clearly moved on from the days of his youth. Pick up the pace, Officer Mabuli. You aren't walking to the gallows. The guardsman sped up, and it was a good thing he did. As they turned the corner, they saw several men standing in front of Ramos' cell, and the guard that had escorted them was unconscious on the ground. Three small empty cases were spread out across the floor, and Madbuli let out a yelp of surprise as he realized that the weapon they were just finishing assembling was a flamethrower. Sidia couldn't help but wonder how such a skittish man kept finding work in prisons. The would-be assassins, clad in guild longcoats, turned toward the newcomers, 
drew service revolvers and immediately opened fire. Sadia grabbed Madbuli and charged forward, using the man as a human shield as he closed the distance. Bullets riddled the guardsman's body, but he had served his purpose and allowed Sadia to close on the assassins relatively unharmed. One bullet connected with his right leg, he ignored the pain as he drew his mirtu blade. Sadia pushed the bullet-ridden corpse of Madbuli onto the nearest assassin, drawing a cry of surprise from the woman. His blade disemboweled the next man cleanly, cutting him open from bottom left to top right, and the swing continued through the next man's throat. In a moment, two of the assassins were dead. Never been in a prison fight. No guns allowed. The tight confines made it difficult to maneuver, but Sadia was accustomed to fighting in cramped places. The fourth man, the one with the flamethrower, reached for the trigger of his weapon. Sadia swatted the barrel of the weapon aside and winced at the heat as a jet of flame shot forth from the weapon, scorching the side of his beard. Sadia ground his teeth together and stabbed the man in his side, over and over again, until his eyes rolled up into his head and he collapsed in a bloody heap. Sadia turned to find the woman had regained her feet and drawn a knife of her own. She lunged at him, but Sadia simply stepped backward and brought his blade up, shearing through her forearm. She screamed in pain and fell to the ground, clutching her bleeding stump. Sadia grabbed her hair and pulled her head back, forcing her to look up at him through tear-filled eyes. Shh! It's after hours, he whispered as he slit her throat. The murder's complete. Sadia wiped the blood from his blade and looked up to see an old man. His skin burned and his right arm missing below the shoulder. Victor Ramos was chained and watching him intently. I assume they came to kill me, Ramos asked. The heavy control collar fastened around his neck clearly made it uncomfortable for him to speak. Sadia nudged the flamethrower with a toe of his boot. It doesn't matter now. Ramos nodded his agreement. Are you here to free me? Heavens no, Sidia laughed as he looked back at the former president of the Union. You're a criminal. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for the conclusion of the coming storm.